Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Hendrik Hartog is the class of 1921 Bicentennial Professor in the History of American Law and Liberty Emeritus at Princeton University. For more than a decade, he directed Princeton's program in American Studies. He is the author of several books, including Man and Wife in America, A History, which was cited in the majority opinion of the 2015 Supreme Court case Obergefell versus Hodges. Today we'll be discussing his 2018 work, The Trouble with Minna, A Case of Slavery and Emancipation in the Antebellum North, and we'll be using it as a vessel to explore some of the topics discussed in Law and Social Inquiries May 2019 Review Symposium, Retrospective on the Work of Hendrik Hartog. Dr. Hartog, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Could you begin by telling us a bit about Minna's story and how her life's intersections with law serves as a lens through which to understand the legal regime that existed during New Jersey's period of gradual emancipation? Well, I should start, and this is, with, of course, with an apology, but as with so many enslaved people, we don't know nearly enough about her. So at the end of the book, I speculate fairly broadly about trying to use the whole array of information that I've acquired to draw plausible inferences about her life. But there are all sorts of mysteries. At the very end, using census records, I can find a Mina in Philadelphia who may be the same as the Mina who I was studying, but for the life of me, I don't really know what happened to her after the case. So let, let's start with that. Secondly, I fell in love with this case. The case is itself premised on several misstatements about her. So at some level, it's like a kind of Chinese box of mysteries on mysteries on mysteries. All of the judges assume that she is an enslaved person because it is sort of the premise through which this is kind of classic law school 101. Without that evidentiary premise, the legal analytics would fall apart on both sides. So for various reasons and for very different reasons, each of the judges in the case presumed that she was enslaved. The more I've read the less certain I am that anybody actually considered her enslaved by 1840. She is assumed to be worthless. This is a kind of legal technical term of art. That may be as much because she doesn't want to leave her son, who is in the household of Mrs. Haynes, who is suing for compensation, as anything else. So, you know, at every level, everything about the case remains in a kind of fog of uncertainty. In what ways does the trouble with Minna capture in-between spaces in time, condition, academic discipline, and legal regimes? To answer that, I'd have to move it at different levels. I mean, at one level, just it is a case about the world of gradual emancipation in New Jersey. And I tried to write a book about gradual emancipation, which we typically 
treat gradual emancipation as a moment between slavery and emancipation and a fairly instantaneous moment. Most of the early writing, not the more recent writing, but the early writing about gradual emancipation in the North imagined it as a moment in time so that enslaved people were free after emancipation was enacted or after a statute was enacted. I think historians like me have spent their lives showing that enactment of a statute doesn't mean that what's in the statute happens. In 1804, New Jersey became the last state in the North to pass a gradual emancipation statute. As late as the Civil War, there are still at least a handful of African American people who are being held in something like slavery. It may be, you know, one could say at some theoretical level, those men and women were never free because the, even with the 13th Amendment, New Jersey voted down the 13th Amendment. The book is my effort to try and make sense of what it meant to live in an in-between state. I mean, insofar as gradual emancipation is a period between something called a slave regime and something called a regime of freedom, that existed actually from the 1790s through to 1860. Now, I don't think that's so surprising. In some ways, the burden of doing the kind of legal history that I and others are involved with is to make sense of the space, one might say, between strong and important ideological statements like the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment, England's Emancipation Statute, across the Caribbean. I mean, there's a variety of emancipation laws. These are crucial. They are politically crucial. They mark important transitions in human history. And yet, we all live in more complex spaces in which those things are at best incompletely enacted. So we live in a world in which today, where the 14th Amendment applies to refugees and undocumented people, and yet we also live in a world in which children are separated from their parents uh, when they cross the border. And we know that both of those are part of our legal world at the same time. So it's not that, that we live in a simpler world than the world of gradual emancipation. How does your work reveal the law's life in the muddy realm between slavery and freedom? And could you perhaps respond to Eli Cook and Annette Rosenberg's article in Law and Social Inquiries Review Symposium entitled Slavery, Freedom, and Contract, Blurred Lines and Historical Resistance? I mean, one of the things that I emphasized in The Trouble with Minute is the degree to which contracting became pervasive between enslaved people and putative possible masters and other whites in any number of contexts. I wrote that not thinking explicitly about the debate 
about slavery and capitalism. I wrote that really out of the material that I found, and then through the lens of, of exploring the ways in which the law of consideration and the law of contracting blurred the boundaries between enslaved people and lots of other working people, particularly apprentices and poor people who were under the tutelage of the overseers of the poor. So the boundaries between enslaved people and non-enslaved people grew fuzzier because of the language of contract which shaped their lives. Now that intersects with a, you know, a very lively debate that is going on right now about how to think about slavery. And I think, you know, Walter Johnson and others emphasize the ways in which plantation slavery in the South was subject to a market discipline and that the effect of the market discipline was to re reduce enslaved people to factors of production. Cook and Rosenberg, in what I think is their brilliant essay reflecting on my much more brilliant than anything I could uh, do, take my story and argue that all of my focus on contracting may obscure a fundamental reality about the master-slave relationship. In doing that, they look back to an older Marxist Hegelian Gramscian analysis of the relationship of slavery to freedom, which is identified with the work of Eugene Genovese. It is true that is probably the work that shaped my graduate education as a historian, though it's a long time ago. But what Genovese and his students emphasized was that at bottom, the master-slave relationship cannot rest on market contract. It has to rest on a deeper sense of understanding of dependency and control and what he called paternalism, though that's often read as if it's softer than it actually was. I, I think that's entirely plausible, and it's not inconsistent with the argument um, that I make. I emphasize the realm of contract, and I emphasize the ways in which I thought over time contract was transformative of the relationship, but what was being transformed may have been this deeper understanding that one can identify with uh, with Genovese and with an older understanding of the master-slave dialectic. So I mean, I I think they may really have a point that's worth pursuing. What are some of the strategies and arguments lawyers, litigants, judges, and others used? while navigating the legal culture of gradual emancipation? First of all, one has to understand this legal culture as very broad. And it produces a wide variety of strategies. You know, one, you know, one nasty strategy, which I explore at some length, is that one thing that gradual emancipation means is a decline in the price of enslaved people. Uh, so that the assets of lots of whites are declining. 
that intersects with a boom in the slave market in the South for enslaved people. So, one of the stories I tell at some length is the ways in which slave traders worked to gather enslaved people in order to take them to, primarily to Louisiana, where there are a lot of family connections with New Jersey Louise. And this is a story which I tell, and actually others have told, in part of it because there's a kind of peculiarity to the regime of gradual emancipation after actually already in the 1790s, enslaved people are not supposed to be moved out of state without their quote-unquote consent. But of course, what happens is consent is manufactured. It's fraudulently constructed. It's textually produced by judges who are related to these slave traders who want to move slaves south. So that's one place where you can watch the sort of legal strategies at work. You know, in another story, at an opposite level, I can see lots of instances where enslaved people hold on to pieces of paper, contractual pieces of paper which promise their freedom or which enact their freedom. And part of the issue is how do they prove that they are not enslaved people? And so you see these pieces of paper which are held onto as partly talismanically, but partly because they have kind of in within a contractual legal culture such immense significance. A, a third level is for both whites and African Americans, there's a lot of significance to state borders and state boundaries, both about being moved south, but also about being moved or moving to New York City or to Philadelphia. On both sides of New Jersey, you have cities where freedom is more clearly enacted than it is in New Jersey, and also where there are large free black communities uh, within which enslaved people can disappear. The significance of those borders, the significance of the river and crossing the river can have enormous significance. What does your work tell us about how the law revolving around domestic relations, the poor and laborers, traverse the legal regime of gradual emancipation? Well, clearly it shows, which I don't think I'm alone for, is that, that the boundaries between poor relief, apprenticeship, the control of servants and the control of enslaved people is much more fluid than a certain kind of legal historical scholarship which focused on the singularity of slavery emphasized. So in that sense, it is revisionist. So I'm not alone. I mean, Chris Tomlin's book on freedom makes very similar kinds of arguments. My student, Alex Lerner, has a dissertation on poor relief in the South. And so this is not novel, I think. I mean, one of the things that I suppose the book does is at least within this peculiar arena of consideration law and the responsibility for care, it shows how fluid the judges 
discourse was about using citations from care of the elderly, care of the poor, care of apprentices, and care of enslaved people, and the ways in which a certain kind of discourse moved quite fluidly between all of those two things. But that's a, you know, it's, it is an interesting field. It is remarkable how little work there has been on the sort of, call it the law of consideration and the law of caretaking. I should note that I came to this case and I began this not because I was working on the law of slavery, but because I was working on old age care and the history of old age care. And I kept seeing citations to this case, those three things. So I come to the subject with a sense about how does the law compensate for care as a kind of general problem. That was really my starting point. What role does people's mobility between and their connections to various jurisdictions play in this work? I think this is a subject that needs more work and more theoretical. The historiography of the past 30 years in both this name, William Novak on one side, my own work on New York City, Gordon Horwitz's work, others, you know, Willard Hurst's work, all privilege the idea of state jurisdictions, the power of state jurisdictions. I think my own book on marriage, other works have complicated that image of looking at states as more or less complete and more or less solid jurisdictions. Because the, this is central to, call it the American experience, but it's actually a global experience. It's central to the global experience, both of people free and not free around the world is of mobility across jurisdiction. And that's certainly true of both slaveholders and enslaved people in relationship to New Jersey. On the one hand, they are caught by the terms of New Jersey's regime. On the other hand, what is New Jersey? New Jersey sometimes is New York, and sometimes it may be Pennsylvania. The boundaries are relatively hard to enforce, and there's a wonderful phrase of, attributed to Benjamin Franklin that New Jersey is a barrel open at both ends. But in a sense, New Jersey is not atypical in its in the fluidity of people's movements across jurisdictions. As a legal matter, that means that so much of American law in the 19th century really has to be looked at through the lens of conflict of law and choice of law, rather than in terms of simply looking at state enactments all by themselves. How does the trouble with Minna illuminate some of the uses and pleasures of choosing legal history as a pastime? I can only speak for myself. But I tend, I, I wrote about this in a Davis seminar talk just I tend to fall in love with sources. The pleasures of Minna is because, partially because the story is so mysterious. It, it raises so many questions. 
It raises questions about the judges, as well as about the litigants, about the lawyers. One can follow all these kinds of paths. It, it raises a variety of doctrinal themes about the law of slavery and emancipation, about contract law, about property law, about the law of caretaking, about the, the history of statutes and legislation in a state like New Jersey, about contending political groups, Quakers, slaveholders, various political actors, and it's always incomplete. I mean, one never can do enough. Now, you know, I've been really fortunate because I've had the privilege of being able to fall in love with sources like this. That's not to say every legal case is equally lovable. There's a lot of very boring material. In a sense, to, to sort of frame this historiographically, this comes out of the sort of cultural history moment in which, you know, beginning with books like Carl Ginsburg's Cheese and the Worms or Natalie Davis's Return of Martin Gare, there's a kind of focus on finding the stories within particular trials and litigation. Litigation events. I suppose what what makes my work different than that, or what makes the work of people like me different than that, is that we focus more on the legal materials, while the, the cultural historians uh, work to draw out of the legal materials a kind of social history or a cultural narrative. But um, the search for the illuminating revealing story is part of the, the pleasures of, of what we do or what I do. And it's, it has costs. I think it has, it can lead to a kind of fetishization of the story against the, what is representative. One of the things I worked very hard in The Trouble with Minna is writing you know, that is basically chapters two and three, which are attempts to kind of situate Minna's story not just as exemplary or as idiosyncratic, but as part of a kind of broader culture about the history of emancipation. And that's crucial to what I wanted to do. I think the cases to fall in love with is central but you can't just fall in love with the case. You need a culture and a context. Okay, well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today.